I think that it is really about finding out what your students are interested in and helping them explore those interests to fall deeply in love with something and pursue that topic with great intensity. I think it's also about providing them access to things that they never knew existed before and giving them that opportunity to explore, to try new things out, to be challenged, to fail miserably as a part of that process, to pick themselves back up and really work through hard situations and problems, realizing that answers don't always come easy. And that's a good thing to really explore their own creative boundaries, to push up against them and to push through them when necessary. I think that Again, as educators and advocates and, and parents and mentors for gifted kids, then we can help them do that. Again, we have to encourage them all along the way because they're not going to be fine just on their own. This is NCAGT's They'll Be Fine podcast. I am Julie Church. I am a NCAGT board member, and I am also an AIG specialist in Onslow County, North Carolina. And I am Jessica Applegate, the current executive director for NCAGT. And today we are speaking with Dr. Angela Hausen and her husband, Dr. Brian Hausen, who are both well-known and respected in the field of gifted education. Dr. Angela Hausen is the associate dean for academic affairs, program support, and student success at the University of North Carolina Wilmington's Watson College of Education. Dr. Housen is the recipient of the 2019 North Carolina Association for the Gifted and Talented Outstanding Service Award and numerous other recognitions for outstanding teaching and service. And Dr. Brian Housen is the coordinator of the academically or intellectually gifted program at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And he was also my professor when I got my gifted licensure in 2019. He has worked in education as a classroom teacher, a teacher of the gifted and a university professor for over 20 years. Dr. Housen wears many hats. He is a program coordinator, professor, speaker, consultant, author, and self-proclaimed geek, which we will get into later in this episode. Together, Drs. Brian and Angela have authored books, worked closely with Dr. Renzulli. They both present nationally and internationally at gifted conferences and events. So welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to have you both here today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Julie. Thanks, Jessica, for inviting us to, uh, to be a part of a conversation, which is what Angela and I are really looking forward to today. Brian, you wear a lot of hats. Coordinator, professor, speaker, consultant, author, and self-proclaimed geek. So we're just curious, which one's your favorite? Do you have a favorite? So I'm going to say that my favorite wasn't listed there, and that would be to be the husband of Dr. Angela. <laughs> so that is my favorite. Good answer. Role. Good answer. Yes. And you know what? That is actually listed on your website first. So the things that you love. So I apologize for not including that. Yeah. No worries, Julie. I will not go back and resend your AIG add-on licensure. <laughs> I do Please not have don't. that power or authority. No, I think that just really having having the opportunity to really kind of play that role of to be kind of that professional synthesizer and to, I mean, work with great educators, not only here in, in Southeastern North Carolina, but all across the state of North Carolina and all across the country. I find that we as different as we are as a nation, that when it comes to being a teacher, an educator of gifted kids, that our needs are so often the same, that we have these incredibly bright, creative individuals, um, ladies in our classroom, and we just want to do what's best for them. So I feel just incredibly fortunate to be able to have that opportunity to work with their parents, advocates for, for gifted kids to try and make their role, their lives just better so that they can really find and fulfill their destiny, if you will. <laughs> That's awesome. We love and that. Angela, so I have a love of trying to combine things that are non-gifted with things that are. That's one of the things that I love doing. And so 
we wanted to know if you would tell us a little bit about how all of your experience in gifted programs has helped you to succeed in your current role. That's an interesting question. I would say that the work that I do with gifted students equips me well to work with gifted adults. And that so much of what teachers are and probably don't even realize it is that they are leaders. They're leaders in their classroom, they're leaders in their building. And the same skills that you use in educating students, it's a huge part of leadership. It's about listening to where people are, understanding what their needs are, and then being able to provide them the information that they need or the support that they need to succeed at the next level. I think when you work in higher education, you think about only about 2% of the population get doctorates. And so the majority, the vast majority of people I work with in higher education have doctorates. So in essence, I am working in an area full of gifted adults and all the unique quirks that come with gifted students, the full spectrum of wonderful and everything else in, in the higher ed landscape as well. So there's a lot to be learned in education about being a leader. I think that's really awesome though, that 2% of people get doctorates. That, mm-hmm. that is very interesting, yeah. but that is cool that like your work with gifted kids has translated into that with adults. Cause when we think about, or at least maybe me, I, when I think of being gifted, I think of children, like that's the population my brain goes to. So obviously gifted kids grow up to be gifted adults and thinking about somebody working on it with professional adults or working with gifted adults in a professional capacity is that's really interesting to me. Yeah. And I've always seen giftedness as a lifetime. It's yes. I'm still not sure about the person who called the national research center when I was working there and tried to convince me that in utero, she was convinced her child was gifted. So I'm not (laughs) sure about that one, but I do think that, that with gifted, there is some it's demonstrated very early with some children and it does follow people throughout the entirety of their life. That also really speaks to one of the great myths about giftedness is that, as Julie said, that we tend to think of giftedness as something that takes place within children, or we talk about gifted education as being a K-12 experience, or sometimes not even a K-12 experience, more of a K-8 experience. And then one of the things that I've routinely done in workshops and professional learning settings is to ask educators who work with gifted kids, are they gifted? Or ask a follow-up, were you in a gifted program when you were a kid? Are you still gifted? And so there's this disconnect where you start at some point thinking that you're no longer a gifted individual. But I think that, as Angela said, is something that really takes place over the course of a lifetime. And I think that we really need to acknowledge that and recognize that Those behaviors, traits, characteristics aren't things that we necessarily grow out of, but it's something that we, that's part of our, our internal being. And that gets expressed in a variety of different ways, again, over the course of a lifetime. Where do you think the disconnect comes from? How, at what point does something happen where we suddenly stop thinking of ourselves? Because I'm one of those people say I was gifted when I was in elementary school. Same. So how does that happen? Where is it just that we stop getting the recognition at some point along the way? And, or what do you think that is? I think that's interesting that you identify, stop getting the recognition. That might be part of it. I think another piece of it is we find that gifted individuals are moving through life and they may not reach their first challenge in elementary school. It might not happen in high school. It might not even happen in their post-baccalaureate degree, but as adults, life is challenging. And so at the point that things stop coming easy, whatever point that is, whether it's intellectually easy or if it's emotionally and personally difficult, the point where you really have to struggle and work at something, if gifted students haven't had opportunities to be challenged at young ages and develop the skill set. I think when they get older and they face those challenges and maybe don't have adequate skills or enough skills or have practiced them enough, they think, oh, this is hard. Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And I use air quotes about, around smart, but maybe I'm not gifted anymore. 
Yeah. Yeah. I would add on to that and say that I think that part of it is that recognition piece. You're gifted because you're in a gifted program. And then when gifted programs end, then suddenly you start maybe saying that you're not gifted anymore. I think that there's also a little bit of, it seems a, perhaps a little bit uppity to say, oh, I am a gifted adult. Yeah. So that can yeah. be off-putting to some people. But I think that when you are gifted and you are a gifted adult, then it is something out of a moment of pride. And so you can say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. I'm thinking about things in this way. This is what my gifted adult experience is. I think that Angela is also absolutely correct in saying that there's that moment of challenge that happens for the individual. So oftentimes that are gifted learners equate being gifted and being smart to that notion of doing things quickly and easily. Mm -hmm. The easier that it is for me to do it, the faster that I can do whatever that task is that I'm given must mean that is my level of giftedness or my level of intelligence, or that is how smart I am. When I start struggling or I face a challenge and I'm not exactly sure how to overcome that, or I don't have the tools in order to solve that problem quickly and easily, then I start questioning, am I gifted? Am I really smart? What if they find out that I've been faking it this entire time and that this giant imposter is going to find out. So maybe I should just not tell them that I'm gifted. It's a lot easier that way. And it never fails to surprise me how I can go from just cruising along in life and like doing so many things that maybe someone else couldn't do to immediately, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid. It's just, there's no in between, right? I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And everybody's like, oh, wow. How do you do all these things? And then the first time something's hard, I'm like, oh God, I'm a moron. And like, I would never put that on my children. I would never put that on anyone else, but it's weird how quickly that switch flips. I know for me, I'm coming from the lens of an AIG specialist. I do. I work with kids. When I think of giftedness, like I immediately think of it being related to academics. And so hearing you say, you know, it going throughout your life and your giftedness, you might not be presented with some kind of challenge until you're an adult. And that might be related to academics. It might not be. I think that's an interesting conversation to have about how giftedness is bigger than just academics. Yeah. And I think that that also really connects with the point that or the myth that gifted kids or gifted individuals are gifted at everything. There are certain things that you are really gifted and talented in, and there are other things that you are going to struggle with every single time. That's why um, the notion that Jaron Zuli describes as giftedness being something that occurs in certain people at certain times and under certain circumstances really resonates with me that you have to be in that right situation at that right moment in time. I believe that. And I also believe that you're gifted 24 seven. So it's this push and pull between where, where my thinking on that really aligns and where it rests. But I think of a lot of that comes back to the definition of gifted that I have of it depends, it depends right. on a variety of different things. And I know that my students and Julie will attest to this really hate when I use that phrase, it depends, but that's what I'm <laughs> going to stick with. And I'll just add to that. And I think when we think about giftedness from the perspective of a teacher, we can only go on the behaviors that are exhibited. So I feel like it's more accurate to say that gifted behaviors manifest in certain people at certain times and under certain circumstances. But the internal experience, the emotional experience of being giftedness is the part that, that is gifted all the time. And very similar to what Brian's saying, except that I've separated, I think, the behaviors from the internal experience of that giftedness. And with all experiences internal, there's no frame of reference to compare it to beyond the conversations that you have with other gifted individuals. So Brian, I have a question for you. So you are a self-proclaimed geek. So I would like to know, talk to us about reclaiming the title of geek in such a positive way. I think 
having grown up in the eighties, that was definitely something that was a derogatory term. I think that if we look at like our Gen Z and millennials, even I think some Gen Xers, pretty much all the generations at this point, that they no longer see that as a, this negative thing, that uh, there is this moment of pride, that it's really cool to brag about how smart you are and to have really deep interest and about very niche things. And so like the more specialized, it's almost the better. And the more, I think, random things that you can combine together, all the better for that. For that, I would say that there were those pockets of geekiness that have like always existed. Prior to the internet, then you would have to really find your people in the same, by being in the same physical location. Like you would go to cities or different clubs or different groups that you would be a part of. But because we're in the globally connected society now, then you can find your people in online environments. And so whatever it is that you're interested in, chances are there are thousands of other people that are interested in exactly that same thing. And you can really connect with one another. I think we also see that rise of geek culture through things, all of the Comic-Cons that are out there. So looking through like cosplay, no matter what it is that you're interested in, there's another group of people out there that are interested in exactly the same thing. And that's this powerful experience because when you grew up in a small town, the way that I did, I felt like that I was isolated and alone, but now I feel like Hey, I'm not alone because I'm connected to whoever it is that I want to be connected to. And it's, I think, just a very empowering experience to know that you're not the only one who's into the things that you're into. I think some of our gifted kids, even when they don't grow up in a rural setting, can be in a school full of a thousand students and still feel alone because they know they are different than their peers. So what Brian said and you can be in a room full of people and still be alone. I think that also really speaks to the power of gifted programs and really speaks to the importance of them because I know that gifted programs can really be that connecting point for many of our students that sometimes in the regular classroom, they feel like that they have to hide their interests or they have to hide their intelligence or they have to fit in with the group. But I've seen how gifted programs can really be transformational for those students where they can go there and they can be as nerdy or as geeky or overexcitable as they want to be within those environments because it's supported and encouraged so often in gifted classrooms. And I think that really makes the difference. Now, that being said, in a gifted program, just because you're identified as being gifted doesn't mean that you're the, exactly the same as every other gifted kid in that classroom, that there is that full range of diversity as a part of that, and that every gifted kid is completely different, like to the extreme level within, within that particular setting. And I think that's a common mistake that we see by people who haven't worked in gifted classrooms before. We wanted to hear first a little bit from both of you about what it is like being a professional husband and wife team in the gifted world. Do you guys consider yourself a team? <laughs> do you guys consider yourself just like walking through the universe, like parallel? What do you know? I would one say we are definitely a team. Yeah. And we also have our individual identities within that. Do you agree, Brian? Are we a team? I agree 100% that we are a team. <laughs> happy wife happy life <laughs> you are correct what I would say is I think we've carved out different places professionally and only slightly different but I know that my work is enhanced and fed by talking with Brian and working with Brian and presenting with Brian and it's also my hope that the intellectual work that I'm doing well, I know actually some of the things that I think about and talk about spurn ideas in the work that Brian does. It makes me think about, we were at EduFest this last summer with a bunch of gifted educators and it's a really fun week during the summer. And I, we were in, we had a meeting in the backyard of one of our colleagues and there were all these umbrellas up, backyard umbrellas. And I said, I wonder how many umbrellas are here. And so they started counting. And I said, is that really an umbrella? What constitutes an umbrella? And so we asked the question, Brian turns that into an entire 
gifted exercise and a really fun one at that. But just because I think there's a lot that happens just because we're two gifted people together. But then I'll be quiet, Brian. You can, I'll plug my ears. You have full carte blanche to say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there are so many things that I just wanted to touch on as part of that. The umbrella activity is brilliant. And so thanks to, thank, thanks to Angela for always asking just really interesting questions. So that that's one of the things that, that I always appreciate most about her because asking a question like what is an umbrella seems very innocent. Turns out it's actually really difficult to define an umbrella. And there was a group of gifted adults that spent the entire week, like discussing what the definition of an umbrella was and then pointing out. And then for weeks and weeks after that, we were had this text message thread that was going and it was like taking pictures of things like, is this an umbrella? I don't think it's an <laughs> umbrella. Um, so I encourage you and the listeners to try and determine what an umbrella is. If you come up with a proper definition or want to email us or contact us, Complete sharing criteria. Your definition, that would we be... need all the criteria. So <laughs> it's criteria. I, I happen to think this. that an umbrella needs to be collapsible. Just saying. Yeah. Um, so that's, that is a, a that's <laughs> an important piece. Uh, I think that your question was, what's it like to be a part of, to be a part of a husband wife team? I think that it, it is always interesting and very inspiring. I feel incredibly fortunate to be a part of that. And also really grateful that Angela and I have had such good role models for that. Obviously we graduated from the University of Connecticut. So we had some really good role models there with the husband and wife team of Joe Renzulli and Sally Reese. Also the husband and wife team of Del Siegley and Betsy McCoke. And I think that in, in both of those relationships that they model how you can be within the same field studying the same topics, yet doing things that are different from one another, but are, that are still connected. And that's, I think I'm just very grateful to have ha had that modeling. Listening to you guys talk about it, it almost sounds like the same thing we were just talking about, how you have found your community, how you need that community mm -hmm. to feel at, like you have your place. And it sounds like you guys give that to one another, which is pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Love that. And I think we should name this episode, What is an Umbrella? <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> umbrella. That'll be an interesting, an interesting response. I really want to post that, see what yeah. people say. Because I'm trying to think of what is an umbrella, but then I'm like, okay, it covers you from the rain. Was this an umbrella? This is just my syllabus. All right, so I, all right. I, just a, one, one other quick thing to build off that, since you're going to name the episode that it's terms like umbrella are the other one that that's, that I've been using a lot is how many holes does a certain object have? Like a straw, like how many holes does a straw have? My amazing wife, when asked that question said that there are infinity holes in a straw. <laughs> By the way, that is the correct answer. Just because we've established that she is always correct. I, I thought that there were two but some people say one, but turns out there are infinity. But when we're trying to define things like that, then it becomes really complicated. And so I think that we, as a field, often struggle with this definition of this thing called giftedness. And if we can't define what an umbrella is and agree upon that, and we can't agree on how many holes are in a straw, like how are we ever going to agree on a single definition of what giftedness is? And so Coming to that realization made me both incredibly sad and happy at the same time, because I was like, oh, like, this is really sad that we can't agree on a definition, but why should we be able to agree on one? Because there are so many different things that it is, and then it can be. While we were prepping for this conversation, there was a lot of discussion about the title of our podcast, They'll Be Fine, and why you feel that it's important to have this discussion. We have had some mixed reviews on the name, but we're just curious what your interpretation of the title of the podcast is, and if you can expand upon what that means for gifted learners. When I first heard that NCAGT was going to start doing a, a podcast, my first initial response was, great, another group's going to try and do a podcast. It's going to be a lot harder than they think that it is, but we'll see what happens. And then I saw what you wanted to, that what you were calling it and was like, oh, 
this is actually going to be interesting. They're going in a different direction. And I really hope that they build on that. We already talked about, or I alluded to, and talked a little bit about the, one of the myths of giftedness. I think the biggest one, especially by people outside of gifted education that have no training or experience in working with gifted kids or gifted adults, is that phrase, they'll be fine. So gifted kids don't really need my help, or I need to give my time and attention to these struggling students or these students who are just barely getting by. We do our best and brightest students a disservice because they need and deserve our attention, our time, our resources, as much as every other learner within our classroom. Giving them an independent project, sending them off to the media center, sticking them on a computer or an iPad, letting them just continue to read by themselves doesn't help move them forward. And I think that it's our job as educators and advocates for those gifted learners to give them what it is that they need, which is challenge, which are opportunities, which is access to resources and just a whole bunch of encouragement, encouragement to go and be and do more. If we aren't there for them, then they will regress to the mean. They will slowly become average and they will lose that drive and that passion for excelling that they once had. So they will not be fine. They need us. Yeah, I knew he was going to do a fabulous job of articulating exactly how I feel in terms of the sentiment. But the other side of this that I think is, I love the irony of the name, they'll be fine. That's not really what you're saying. You're saying, hey, listen, they need support and help. But there's this thought in the secret world of Angela of, a mass of gifted individuals snickering and saying, they'll be fine. Speaking about the mass, the rest of the world, the av- those that are average and saying, they'll be fine without us. They don't need our intellectual capacity. They don't need us to solve the world's problems. They're going to be fine. That's fine. They'll be fine. When in reality, I still believe you need the intellect and the capacity of gifted people to solve the world's most pressing problems. I think about what gets accomplished with a group of profoundly gifted students at a school specifically for gifted students. It's a private school. And so this is a little off track from where we want to be for this conversation. But, you know, when kids can develop a new integer sequence in seventh and eighth grade that gets published in top tier mathematics journals. Or when the Renzulli, Renzulli and Reese like to use the example of the girl who does all the work to create a playground that's accessible. And now accessible playgrounds are a thing, but she did it at a time before accessible playgrounds were a thing. You think about students who see a problem in the world, chat GPT, for example the artificial intelligence that can write a dissertation at this point and be a passable dissertation. You have a group of students who are actively working on solving the problem of how do you identify when something has been created by AI versus a human being. Really interesting pursuits and things that if we're thinking into the future that these are issues that are going to come up in terms of what's the world in store for. We have resource problems. We have pollution problems. We have climate change, which is real problems. And we are not going to be fine if we don't have the intellect of gifted individuals to help us solve those problems. When you hear teachers say, oh, they'll be fine. That's the here and the right now. And ultimately we do need to be having a more futuristic mindset for these kids because they are going to be the ones that are our future leaders that are solving these huge problems and problems that we don't even know are problems yet. So I really love Angela, how you have that mentality of gifted adults and gifted lifelong or being gifted for and how that impacts all of us, not just 
a kid who's gifted in the fifth grade. How do you think this title, they'll be fine, is relevant to teachers? And how can we get the message out to teachers that there's a lot of work to be done for gifted learners? Is it teachers or administrators? Because one of the things that I find problematic in school settings is this notion that differentiation is happening in the classroom. When you have a spectrum of ability that ranges anywhere from fourth grade to ninth grade or 12th grade in terms of where they are, expecting a teacher to differentiate for that span of ability is harsh, but I'm going to say unconscionable. And yet that's how we have our classrooms set up by age, by grade. And I don't know maybe that it's administrator's fault. I think it's more of a systemic issue. So I don't want to, this is not a boohoo on administrators. This is a systemic problem that we, the more we can approach education with a new vision and a new way of thinking about how students move through the content areas and how they move through the levels, the grade levels, if you will, I think the more that that applies. Anyway, Brian, you can speak to teachers better, but I always, that differentiation piece for such variable abilities in a singular classroom is unfair to teachers. Absolutely. I think that Angela raises a really important point just about the power of having knowledge and information and the research related to cluster using cluster grouping within classrooms. Oftentimes we hear administrators say, oh, we're not going to cluster group gifted students because that wouldn't be fair to everyone. Usually they say that and they really have no idea what cluster grouping and the research says about what cluster grouping is, that it's not putting all of your high ability students within the, the entire grade level in the same classroom. It's not about tracking students into high, medium, and low. It's about something completely different. And we need that information to be understood by administrators. We need it to be understood by as many educators as possible. We need parents to understand that. I think from my position as the coordinator of the add-on licensure program at UNCW, then I obviously have a bias against R4, the importance of having teachers licensed through this four core sequence that we have within, within the state of North Carolina. It is something that I value tremendously. Not every state has that. And the states that don't have that type of requirement, then we see teachers simply transitioning from being regular classroom teachers to being teachers of the gifted without having really un any understanding at all of the students that they're working with, of how to differentiate, to how to challenge them, how to teach them to think critically and really help those students move forward. When we say they'll be fine, and we're talking about teachers and educators, just like our gifted kids need us, those teachers also need us. They need to have that knowledge and understanding of how to teach gifted kids. I think if without that, then they're going to potentially do a disservice to the students that they're working with. I don't think that simply studying and taking a test is going to be good enough for what our gifted kids need. I think not only do we need that professional learning within those four courses that lead to that add-on licensure, but we also need ongoing and continuous professional learning opportunities that just because you have those 12 credits and you have that add-on to your license that's coming from the state doesn't mean that your learning stops. You need to have continual learning opportunities through professional learning within your school, within your district, online, through organizations like NCAGT, because in case you haven't noticed, the world is changing at an incredibly rapid pace. I mean, we were, Angela mentioned chat GPT, which is pretty much all I can think about these days. That was officially launched on November 30th of last year. So at the, this recording, it's just over two months old, yet it is completely revolutionizing what higher ed is talking about, what K-12 is talking about. And I think that it's going to transform the types of tasks that we're asking our students to, to complete. So they'll be fine. They won't be fine. Our educators and administrators need that information 
to do what's right for their gifted kids. I just thought of a question, whose responsibility is it to ensure that our teachers know what to do for their gifted learners? Because as a gifted specialist, I am the only one at two schools because my time is split. And I find that a lot of teachers, they, they really don't know what to do. And I do my best to educate them how I can. Whose responsibility is it to make that happen? I feel like higher education has a responsibility to, at a minimum, include a class on gifted methodology, gifted pedagogy, the instruction of gifted students, and the identification of gifted students. But given the fact that gifted is never going to be the underdog, no matter how you frame it, gifted students will never be perceived as the underdog. So much more attention goes to students to bring them up to grade level rather than pushing students to the limits of their capacity, which for gifted students is often beyond the instructor's capacity. So it's incumbent upon higher ed to start to recognize that instruction needs to happen there so that everyone has just a little bit maybe just enough to be dangerous, but enough to know better. I think it's also the responsibility of teachers in the classroom. I think about my first classroom and I still remember these kids, the one that was reading his engineering book instead of listening to my lecture on plate tectonics and the one who had homemade pants because the tags bothered him so bad, but all of his pants had bugs on them because he was fascinated with bugs and the girl who got a perfect SAT score in seventh grade, these are the students I had in my first classroom, my very first classroom. And when you're a teacher and you have that in your classroom, it's, to me, it speaks to, if you're a teacher and you're a lifelong learner, it is my hope that you will seek out the help that you need to learn more about these students to make sure that you are serving them just as much as you are serving. In that same classroom, I had a, a girl who the two hemispheres of her brain had dis were disconnected. And so she had very little capacity to process information of any kind. And so you wanna help her and she has a set IEP and we need to also help the gifted students. So then I would also say it's incumbent upon the legislation to require IEPs that ensure that students continue to make growth no matter where they start and not assume that their starting point is on grade level. So that makes it incumbent upon the legislators. So I think to say that it's anyone, one individual's responsibility is unfair fair maybe, or doesn't lend us to a true solution. Right. I'm sure Brian has other people that he feels might be responsible. It's <laughs> it, to some degree, it might even be the student's responsibility and the parent's responsibility to be advocates. Right. Well, it just yeah. goes back to you talking about how it's a systemic issue. It's not necessarily this person or that person or this school or this job title. It's systemic in nature. Um, so I was just, yeah. that was just a thought that had crossed my mind and I was wanting to ask. No, I think that it's, that it's a shared responsibility that when you step into the role as an educator, whether that's, whether you're a classroom teacher, a teacher of the gifted, whether you're a parent, whether you're a mentor, whatever educator role it is that you're playing as a part of that, that you have that responsibility to get to know who your students are and to meet them where they are. As Angela said, you're gonna have students that are gonna be at a whole variety of different levels. It's important to figure out where it is that they are and to take them further along that road or to empower them to go further along that road. I think that it's also about knowing better and then doing better. As educators, as advocates for gifted, we, I probably made a whole lot of mistakes. I can speak for myself and say that as I was learning to become a teacher, in the beginning, 
it was horrible. I feel really bad for the kids that, that I taught like my first years as a teacher because I was a terrible teacher, but I knew that I always wanted to be better, that I needed to work through that. And I was really learning about how to be um, a better teacher, how to differentiate instruction, how to meet the needs of a variety of learners. It was in my training to become a teacher of the gifted that I felt like that I started to become a good teacher. We have to help others along that way, whether that is teachers that are within our school, sharing those things that we're doing within our classroom. It's not just about teaching our kids. It's about teaching our community so that as you learn more about gifted education, about good teaching practices, about meeting the needs of your gifted learners, share that with as many people as possible especially those that don't want to listen to you. Those are the people that probably need you the most. One of the things that, that I often do when I go to, to speak at different conferences is that I always challenge people to, to find and make new friends during that time, because it's really important for us to have those connections. I also encourage them to think about at least three people back home that they want to share that new information with that they that they gained at that conference or prof professional learning event. When thinking about those people that are back home at school, I always encourage teachers to think about that one teacher that's going to be most excited to learn about what it is that you have to share. Think about that administrator, maybe that maybe they sponsored you to go to that event or they gave you the day off, if you will, to, to attend that professional learning opportunity. Think about what it is that you're going to share with that person. But maybe most important, think about that one teacher that's in your school that really doesn't believe that gifted kids exist. What are you going to give to them to help change their mind? so that you can help the students that are within that classroom. Because we have to share that information with everyone. That's what's gonna make the difference. Given no constraints, what would be your platform for gifted education? One of mine would, I don't know if it's a platform, but letting students progress at their own pace, not stopping them arbitrarily because they're in third grade and we can't start on the fourth grade content because what will they do when they get into fourth grade? And that's overly simplistic. There are always going to be constraints. So to say a third grader should be with high school students, that may not be appropriate either. But letting students progress intellectually. I think my platform would be Every student deserves the opportunity to be cognitively spoiled, mm. meaning that they've had the opportunity to explore things of deep interest to them at a very high level with mentors that can keep up with them and that they have been given the time and space to achieve flow in that work and really work through problems that are authentic. And when I say authentic, I mean have a real world audience where the outcome changes something. But yeah, I think every student should have the opportunity to be cognitively spoiled. So much. Yeah, I'm pretty much not gonna be able to top the opportunity to be cognitively spoiled. That's That sounds pretty amazing to me. I think that it is really about finding out what your students are interested in and helping them explore those interests to fall deeply in love with something and pursue that topic with great intensity. I think it's also about providing them access to things that they never knew existed before and giving them that opportunity to explore, to try new things out, to be challenged, to fail miserably as a part of that process, to pick themselves back up and really work through hard situations and problems, realizing that answers don't 
always come easy. And that's a good thing to really explore their own creative boundaries, to push up against them and to push through them when necessary. I think that again, as educators and advocates and and parents and mentors for gifted kids, then we can help them do that. Again, we have to encourage them all along the way because they're not going to be fine just on their own. Brian, I love the fail miserably part that you said. I know that you have said that before because every year or anytime I get a new student in my gifted program, I always tell them that my class is a place where you can learn how to, is a safe place to learn how to fail. And they're like, what? You want us to fail? I'm like, yes, (laughs) I want you to experience that. I want you to, I want you to be challenged with something that could possibly lead to that. So, you know, how it feels. And that is something that is going to continue to challenge you. And you don't have the stress of the grades or being held back or whatever. Like this is a safe place for you to be challenged and to experience failure. And it's like a whole conversation we have to have about why that's okay. Cause they're not used to it. <laughs> they're not used really, to that. You're, you're helping that makes me, that makes me really proud, Julie. So thank you. That, that's like a proud teacher moment. Oh, yeah. mm. I'm just thinking about the conversation we had earlier about how quickly that switch can flip, but I think giving gifted students that opportunity helps to protect their identity going forward, right? I am still that smart, the air quotes that Angela used at the beginning. I'm still smart even when things don't, when the outcome isn't what I expect it to be, when it isn't easy. So I love that you do that, Julie. As a friend, I'm proud of you, which is not the same. Thank you. I say it to parents too. And parents are like, okay, I'm not sure about this gifted program. Because <laughs> they always ask me about grades. I'm like, I don't give grades. I don't give grades. I give feedback and I will do assessments and I'll let them know how they're doing. But like, ultimately I want them to have the opportunity to fail safely, I guess. <laughs> um, all right. Last and final question. Talking about the term gifted. Do you agree that that term in itself is problematic? And if so, what would you rename the term gifted? The term gifted has been used for decades now, decades, decades upon decades. And there may be problematic components to it, particularly given how we often identify for gifted programs that don't end up being representative of the larger demographic. So traditionally underrepresented populations continue to be traditionally underrepresented in gifted programs. And so that is a huge problem we as a field face. However, I would not suggest throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of the term. Because if we don't call it something, if it does not have a name, an easily recognizable name, we lose funding, we lose opportunities for advocacy, we lose legislative mandates, we lose any progress that we may have made historically with the term gifted. So from where I sit, I see policy implications that go beyond the term itself in terms of the need to support and serve gifted students. I am not denying that the field of gifted education has a serious problem with identification and there's work to be done there. And I hope that we make progress sooner rather than later. But I would say, no, don't no, do not throw out the term. I think that the term um, is problematic for a whole variety of reasons that Angela just listed there. There's, I think, a long history with that word. The problem is that a rose by any other name is still going to smell like gifted. We could call it gifted Ralph, but (laughs) it would be referred to as the artist formerly known as gifted. It's the same thing. When we talk about it from like a policy standpoint, then they're like, oh, didn't you used to call this like the gifted program? In North Carolina, we call gifted AIG. We're the only state that does that. Other places have different names for it. Like in Washington, they call it high ability learners. 
um, it's still the gifted program. So whatever it is that you call it, we're still running into these, these same issues. I grew up as a gifted kid. I'm a gifted adult. I identify with that as a term. I like the G word. I think that, I think that it's good. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And I think that maybe the, one of the things that, that I don't like about it is that it seems to indicate that giftedness is something that is given to you or bestowed upon you not something that you develop, that you have to work on, that you have to continually with as a part of that. It's just this thing like your magic fairy godmother has come and bestowed giftedness upon you, or you've been given that gifted label, and now you're suddenly gifted. It's about so much more than that. But I think that no matter what it is that we call it, it's going to be problematic, even if we call it Ralph. So are you saying I should cancel my petition to change the name of Gifted to Ralph? You're going to have the same problem there, Julie. Ralph seems like a great name. <laughs> I'm sure that, is it, that it is an acronym for something, but I could create an acrostic. It would work. <laughs> All right. I'll go ahead and pull the plug on that. <laughs> oh, well, so how can listeners get in contact with both of you if you have a preference for where they do that? They can call me in my office at UNCW. They ahousand at gmail.com. They have to put something about gifted education in the regarding line because otherwise I it go through it pretty quickly. So something to catch my attention. And they can people can certainly reach out to me via email, Brianhausen at gmail.com. You can also visit my website, Brianhausen.com. So uh, feel free to reach out. We're both easy to track down, whether through the website, via email, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is that you want to do. I love hearing from folks and just knowing that you're doing great work out there. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an awesome conversation and we can't wait to release this. Yes. And spinoffs. I have so many, I want to explore the mentor you both mentioned a mentor piece, and I would love to talk more about that. We wanted to talk with you guys about technology. We will definitely be asking you guys to come back and spend time with us, but we do appreciate the time that you've given us today. Yeah, this was really fun. So I'm, I'd be happy to come back again.